Hello. This week, we're talking about the 1968 Patrick Trout and Doctor Who serial, The Dominators. I hate The Dominators. You may know this already. But just so there's no mistaking, I hate The Dominators so much that I'm not even going to review it properly. I reviewed it for real on Rec Arts Doctor Who in 1994, and I'm still angry that I even had to watch this story back then in order to review it. I originally reviewed the novelization on the Ratings Guide 10 years ago, and I'm still angry that I even liked the novelization. I have tried every possible way that there is to like The Dominators. I have tried watching it in the morning. I have tried watching it at night. I have tried watching it drunk. I have tried watching it sober. I have tried watching it with friends. I have tried watching it alone. I tried watching it while playing erotic Capture the Flag with identical twin Victoria's Secret models. No, I haven't. But I bet that wouldn't help either. I have tried watching it with the sound off while listening to an audio copy of City of Death. It hasn't helped. So here are, with apologies to Julia Stiles, and I suppose William Shakespeare, 10 Things I Hate About You. I hate that if I live another 49 years, I will never write anything as funny as Bill Evenson's review of this thing for the first Outside In volume. I hate that I can't even sell my DVD of this story because the Scottish falsetto sock puppet theater Easter egg hidden on the special features menu is so funny that I can't bear to live my life without it. I hate that the credited writer, Norman Ashby, is not even a real person so that I can't friend him on Facebook and post gifs of the worst moments of the story on his wall on a daily basis. I hate that Patrick Troughton does not get a word of dialogue until more than five minutes into episode five. He's literally the best thing about the final episode, and he's hardly even in it. I hate that I've actually watched this story a dozen times over 30 years, and I still don't know which one is Kando and which one is Teal. I hate that Ian Martyr made the novelization so good, because the episode is so bad that it bothers me that I actually enjoy anything that came out of it. I hate that I'm curious as to how much worse this could have been had the sixth episode not been cut out. Can't for the life of me figure out how another 25 minutes of drama could have been extended out of this repetitive, soporific mess. I hate that the stock footage of the volcano used at the end of episode 5 was also seen in Enemy of the World and Inferno, because it's not fair that two of classic Doctor Who's finest hours have to share footage with this festering waste of celluloid. I hate that I once complained that Peter Ling's novelization of The Mind Robber cuts out the continuity to this story because it messed with screen accuracy. I mean, the fact that the author of the brilliant Mind Robber pretended this story never even happened, and I didn't just accept that gift to continuity, like manna from heaven. And I hate that I'm still complaining about this story 29 years after I first wrote a review of it. Can I find anything better to do with my life? Direction Point! Direction Point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi everybody! Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations, 
put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. Last week, episode 85, my daughter joined me as a special guest for Enlightenment. It was her very first classic Doctor Who serial in full, and her very first novelization in full. She had, of course, one of the best first day download numbers that I've ever had, and the episode certainly performed well above average over the first week. Thanks to each and every one of you who downloaded or who spread the word. Callie is very, very pleased with herself and wants to come back. I do have to make a correction, though, as I almost always do whenever a new James Coure Smith substack comes out, Psychic Paper. He always seems to time his essays to correct some point that I made that I got from Received Wisdom, which turns out to have been received incorrectly. I told Callie last week that after Enlightenment in 1983, the next Doctor Who story written solely by the female author came in 1989 with Survival. Now, the 1985 story, Attack of the Cybermen, is credited to Paula Moore, but Received Wisdom is that Paula Moore had nothing to do with the writing of that story, with credit going to either Eric Sayward or, depending on how charitable you feel, Ian Levine. James Coure Smith, however, does not just sit on conventional wisdom. He did the research. He dug pretty deep, and he has come to some interesting conclusions about the true authorship of at least the very first episode of Attack of the Cybermen. So next time Callie is on the show, should that happen, I will certainly talk to her about Attack of the Cybermen. In other Doctor Who news, a couple of big media releases were announced this past week, early August 2023, following the Adaptation of Doctor Who in An Exciting Adventure with the Daleks, the 1964 David Whittaker book, turned into a gorgeous illustrated hardcover, illustrated by Robert Hack. We are getting a second illustrated hardcover of a Doctor Who novelization, again by Robert Hack. This, however, is the new series novelization Rose by Russell T. Davies. Also coming out, a fully animated color version of the underwater menace now there was a release in 2015 of the underwater menace on dvd with restored versions of the two surviving episodes episodes two and three and with basic telesnap reconstructions of episodes one and four but we are now getting the deluxe animated version and this is after bbc america stopped co-funding the animations last year following the release of the abominable snowman we are getting a four-part color, 16 by 9 animated version of the story, including animations of the two surviving episodes. This will be a deluxe edition, though, that of course includes the original versions of the story, and will also feature a bunch of bonus features. While I don't have Underwater Menace in my top five Patrick Troughton serials, I think it is an underrated story, which has some very interesting features to it, and I think it is deserving a fresh look, and a fair look. I know when I joined Internet Phantom in the early 1990s, somebody on Records Doctor Who described it as the Plan 9 from Outer Space of Doctor Who. At the time, all that survived were nth generation copies of Episode 3, 
it was mistakenly believed the production values were so poor that you could actually hear talk back from a production assistant in studio right after the opening credits. That, of course, turned out to be an incorrect fact. What we were hearing was the cliffhanger dialogue to episode two. Now, Underwater Menace might not necessarily work when Nigel Robinson did the novelization towards the end of the original Target run. He substantially restructured the ending, and I think he improves the story significantly by doing that. But there's a lot to like about Underwater Menace. There is Patrick Troughton's chaotic early version of the second Doctor. There is Joseph First's justly famous performance as Professor Zaroff. And there are some interesting subplots in there as well, one of which rivals a moment from The Curse of Fenric. And there I am, probably the first person ever to compare Underwater Menace to The Curse of Fenric, but I said it. And when that DVD comes out, I'll be discussing it over on Trap 1, and I'll make my point in full there. And again, when the Underwater Menace novelization comes up on this show, which is going to be at least a year from now, so please make sure to subscribe, get new episodes pushed to your phone or listening device, and tune in when I discuss The Underwater Menace many, many, many months from now. But in the meantime, it is 1984. It is target book number 86, and it is a new phase for the target line, following 10 straight published novelizations of Peter Davison stories. We're going back to the beginning, and Target from now on is going to regularly fill in holes in its back catalog by novelizing for the first time William Hartnell, Patrick Troughton, and John Pertwee stories that were not adapted in the 1970s or the very early 80s. From now on, we will regularly go back and forth along Doctor Who's timeline from the 60s to the 80s to the 70s to the 60s to the 80s to the 60s, the first of these, and I've been waiting for this moment for a long time, is the novelization of The Dominators. That's right. This is the first novelization of an old-time story that Target has put out in quite some time, as we sit here in 1984, and it is a story that is perennially ranked very low on any wide-ranging survey of Doctor Who classic series stories. The great thing about the Target novelizations is that it gives us a fresh look at a less-than-universally-beloved story and causes us to reevaluate that story. If I'm talking about the Dominators, there can only be one guest who's going to join me to go 15 rounds, and that, of course, is the foremost defender of the Dominators on Twitter, longtime friend of the show, and he's been on the show many times before, Mr. Fraser Gregory. Coming up after the break, Fraser and I will debate the Dominators. There can only be one winner. Let's get to it. The verboids are probably the best dirty joke in Doctor Who. They're hermaphroditic plants. A lot of plants are. So there you go. That's it's based on science. No, they'll ship anything. There are probably eleven and handle shippers out there. You just have to drill a hole where his mouth is, and you're all set. You know yeah. he needs the room. I've seen it in pictures. I'm not saying you're not a fan. I'm saying you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Doctor Who gives a f- a drunken Doctor Who podcast for the end times. You are listening to Doctor Who Literature. 
Keep turning the pages! My name is Stacy Smith. I am, among other things, the editor of the Outside In series. I am a frequent guest on this podcast, and I am the co-author of Look at the Size of That Thing, a comedy guide to the wonderful world of Doctor Who fandom, which is co-written with Bill Evenson. Bill, I got to know because he wrote an entry for Outside In on The Dominators. Later, we decided to co-write a comedy book together. Here is my entry for that in a section that we call the 50 Doctor Who stories you'd rather die before you watch. Here's how bad this story is. The single best thing about it, far and away, by any metric you care to use, is the faux review of it by my co-author in the original Outside In, which was so funny that one of the other contributors reported that, after reading it, his wife banned him from reading in bed. So it was either funny or very, very sexy. Indeed, that piece was so good that while I had to write or edit 20 books before I could get a look in for the comedy book I've been wanting to write for decades, that review was Bill's entire audition piece to get this gig. So either that review was incredibly good or The Dominators was unbelievably bad. You be the judge. The contributor to Outside In, whose wife banned him from reading in bed as a result of that review, was, of course, Jason Miller. You heard it here first. Joining me now for what is probably the most anticipated segment in the entire history of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. We have been building up to this for months, literally years. Every time I mention my true feelings on the TV serial, the Dominators, Fraser will reply on Twitter. I've started saying hello, Fraser, every time I mention the Dominators on this show. And here he is. After all this time, ready to go 15 rounds in a heavyweight title fight discussing Doctor Who and the Dominators, my special guest of the week, Mr. Fraser Gregory. Fraser, welcome to the show. Command accepted, Jason. And I noticed that your Zencaster screen name is set to Navigator Fraser. Well, I couldn't be the probationer on this one, could I? <laughs> you are not the probationer when it comes to this story. Fraser, we're going to shake it up a little bit. We're going to start off by playing our game first. Ooh. For an episode like this, it is not enough to merely play 20 questions. It is not enough to play Guess That Cliffhanger. We're going to play a new game this week that has never been seen on Doctor Who literature before. We're going to be playing a game of Would You Rather. <laughs> right. I will give you 10 items. Mm -hmm. The winning score is seven. 
Question one. Would you rather dot 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 watch Ronald Allen in the Ambassadors of Death or Ronald Allen in The Dominators? Oh, blimey. Um Ronald Allen in The Dominators. I think he's 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 a great Ralph Cornish, but he he, he has something extra in in the Dominators that he's he's just got that sort of cadaverous Frankenstein-esque feel about him that really towers over the Dominators. Interesting. So that's one for the Dominators and zero for common sense and good taste. Let's move on to question two. Would you rather dot 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 watch Arthur Cox in the 11th hour or Arthur Cox in the Dominators? Well, obviously the Dominators because he gets very little to do in the 11th hour other than get his car keys stolen by Ian Bond. <laughs> you know, whereas in The Dominators, he gets to do the full Bruce Willis and go around, you know, tipping rocks onto quarks and throwing canisters of explosion, explosives at them and just generally being the all-out action hero that he was born to be. You make The Dominators sound very exciting when you talk about Arthur Cox as the Bruce Willis of Dulcus. Yeah. Yes. So right now the score is Dominators 2, Good Taste 0. And remember, the winning score is 7. <laughs> Question 3. Would you rather dot 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 watch Malcolm Terrace in the Horns of Nymon or Malcolm Terrace in the Dominators? Um, I can't remember who he plays in the Horns of Nymon, so I'll just say the Dominators. All right, I'll rephrase the question then. Would you rather dot 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 watch Malcolm Terrace as the co-pilot in the Horns of Nymon or... Malcolm Terrace in his two scenes in The Dominators. Yeah, obviously the two scenes in The Dominators. Interesting, because his performance as the co-pilot in parts one and two of Horns of Nymon is one of Doctor Who's most memorable short guest appearances, because at no point in The Dominators does he shout, Weakling scum! Weakling scum! No, but he's he's not up against um, the single greatest guest performance of any, you know, Doctor Who supporting actor in Graham Crowd and Soldied. Lord Nymon! Lord Nymon! It is I, Soldied! I think you're right about Graham Crowden, but I, I, th I thought you were going to say going up against the greatest guest star. <laughs> of all time, Ronald Allen and the Dominators. <laughs> well, they do not share any screen time together because Malcolm Terrace is killed off very early on in the proceedings. Question four, would you rather watch The War Games or The Dominators? Oh, The Dominators, because I can fit that in an afternoon. <laughs> That's a fair point. I should have uh, chosen a shorter classic uh, Trouton episode, but the question is the question. Dominators are up for zip. Question five, would you rather watch Pyramids of Mars or The Dominators? Um, probably The Dominators, I think. You know, huh. Pyramids of Mars is, is, is great fun and all, but, you know, it, it hasn't got quarks, has it? It's got mummies, you know. And... That's exactly why everybody should vote Pyramids of Mars, because mummies would clearly defeat quarks. Well, I don't think they would. I think the quarks have probably got... Not much in it, but they've probably got more speed and agility on the mummies, and they've also got projectile weapons. So by the time the mummy comes anywhere close to squishing a quark between its chest, between its bosom, um, <laughs> you know, the quark has shot it down. 
But the mummies are immune to bullets because they are robots wrapped in specially preserved uh, bandages. So, I, I I I would give my I would give my vote to the mummies in that in that matchup. But you're going with the dominators. The quarks don't fire bullets though. They fire ultrasonic rays, which would just dissolve the mummy and their wrappings. I think Sutex technology was a little stronger than the uh, dominators. So maybe maybe, maybe those. Maybe the mummy's gauze bandages are specifically designed to withstand the Dominator's death rays. Well, the hand of Sutek might might assist him somehow, but... <laughs> all right, question six. Would you rather watch The Day of the Doctor, which was number one of all time in the 2014 DWM Doctor Who survey, or The Dominators, which was a little bit below number one? Um, Maybe a couple of hundred spaces below. Yeah, I don't know um, if you've noticed the, the the publication error with the latest AWM poll, where they printed it upside down, and they had the Dominator's bottom um, when it should really be in the top. Um, I have addressed that with DWM. Um, I'm just waiting for a reprint and, a, and, a, <laughs> and an apology for that error. Um, it'll come in a couple of months, don't worry. Um, I'm going to say the Dominator's again. So you would take the um, 227th or whatever it was, greatest episode of all time, over the number one episode of all time, according to DWM, in 2014. I mean, Dave, the Doctor's very good, isn't it? It's got um, Matt Smith being Matt Smith, and he's wonderful, and, and David Tennant's really good as well. Um, but it hasn't got Pat Troughton and Wendy Padbury and Fraser Hines doing what they do best, which is larking about and having fun. And I was wrong. Dominators is not 227. That lofty perch goes to the Curse of the Black Spot. Dominators is, in fact, in the 2014 survey at number 234, eight from the bottom. Yeah, again, that's probably upside down. I'll, I'll, I'll bring that up with them as well. Don't worry. Question seven, dot, dot, dot. Would you rather watch any Jodie Whittaker episode or The Dominators? Well, there is quite a lot of Jodie Whittaker episodes I enjoy. Um... I mean, something like Power of the Doctor would be a would be a hard choice, I suppose, because that is a phenomenally good episode. But yeah, it's probably going to be the Dominators ultimately. Huh. So Dominators has officially won. It's gotten seven out of ten, and we've only asked seven questions. But for the sake of fun, we're going to keep going until the very end. Question eight: Would you rather dot 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 watch Meglos or the Dominators? Oh. That is tricky, because Megalos is a lot of fun, isn't it? And, uh... I am Megalos! Last It's a lot of something. Yeah. I mean, can I, can I really cast aside my, my title as pro Megalos Twitter troll? Yes, I can. Let's watch The Dominators. <laughs> the Dominators is 848. We only have two questions to go. Is anything extant out there that can break the Dominator streak? Would you rather watch Citizen Kane, often described as the greatest movie of all time, or The Dominators? The Dominators. I mean, we all we all know it's the Sledge. <laughs> if one of the quarks had been named Rosebud, that might have put a very different different uh, <laughs> handle on proceedings. Yep. 
Question 10. Would you rather listen to the Doctor Who Literature podcast or watch the Dominators? Thankfully, I can do both. I can listen to us talk about the Dominators while I watch the Dominators, so I don't even have to pick with that one. All right, so I'm not going to give that one to the Dominators, but the final score is Dominators 9. Good taste, decency, common sense, and friendship at 1. <laughs> Dominators is a clearly the Dominator in the category. Absolutely. That was a fun game. I enjoyed that one. We'll have to do it again next time. Next time, I think you're going to be on for a story that I like slightly more, so there's not going to be much impetus to play. You do go uh, by Twitter, or as it's called X now for some reason, as Champion of the Damned. What are some other stories that are universally derided, which are your personal favorites that you would pick over Pyramids of Mars, or Day of the Doctor, or Meglos? Uh, well, Meglos is one of them. Um, you know, I've always had a soft spot for Meglos just because of how daft and fun and entertaining it is. Um, we've already talked about uh, Creature from the Pit. Um, on this, on this very podcast, you know, you can put um, the horns and name on in there as well. You know, um, it's just it, it's just fun, entertaining. Um, you know, Doctor Who. I don't think Doctor Who always has to be as you know serious and poor faced as Eric Sayward would like it to be. I think there's a lot of room for just having something that you can sit and enjoy. Maybe even as background noise, just put on a a story and you know while you're maybe you know doing something else just to just to enjoy i think um space museum is one i've always championed as much as possible as well um in that dwm poll that i mentioned we know it was upside down because the web planet came last for um the first doctor poll um so again they've got that upside down it's both that go upside down because web planet is another um really excellent story that i that i like to champion um I think that's about, about it. I think most people kind of agree with us on, on everything else being really good. It, it, it's only so, sort of the, the, the outliers like yourself who don't seem to like the Dominators for some bizarre reason. Well, it was 234 out of 241 in the year 2014, but I did not vote in that survey because I wasn't aware of it and I wasn't a subscriber. Had I voted in that survey, Dominators might have been kicking in at 239 or 240. <laughs> Who knows? As high as that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, if we're talking about the 20... I mean, the problem with the current DWM survey is that they only go doctor by doctor and not from the entire era start to finish. So you can't really do this cross-judging of stories anymore. But just counting backwards uh, from 241, Twin Dilemma is considered the worst of all time. I think Dominators is better than that because there are some scenes in the Dominators in isolation that are really funny, like the scene where the Doctor and Jamie are being tested by the Dominators and the Doctor plays Brilliant. stupid. That's a classic scene. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there are a couple of other isolated 60-second clips that you could pull out of Dominators that, that I enjoy. Uh, second from the bottom is Fear Her. I've heard a really good defense of Fear Her from Keir Hansen of the Gallifrey's public radio podcast. He and I were on the same Defending the Indefensible panel at Long Island Who a few years ago, and he gave a really good defense of Fear Her. I just don't think Fear Her works as written, produced, and acted. I would probably take the Dominators over Fear Her because 
Fear here doesn't really have anything fun in it. And then that whole ending with the Olympics and the Doctor carrying the torch is a little too precious for me. So I definitely have the Dominators above. Third from the bottom is Time and the Ronnie. I think Dominators is a clear winner there. Time Lash. I've hate-watched Time Lash several times, and I enjoy bits of it. I would have that pretty much on an even keel with Dominators. So now you're talking, if Time Lash is 238, that puts Dominators at 237 or 238. Several other stories on this list are stories that you have chosen for Doctor Who literature because Time Flight is 5th from the bottom of 237. Underworld is 6th from the bottom of 236. And then Space Pirates is at 235. Space Pirates was adjudged worse than Dominators. I think Space Pirates is better because even though it's not Robert Holmes having found his voice yet, it still is Robert Holmes, and it is a comedy more than anything else. It's a comedy that's hiding as a slow-moving, poorly-paced space opera, but it is a comedy. So I, I think Dominators is probably about fifth from the bottom rather than eighth, but it's definitely not the worst of all time. I thought you were going to say the Space Pirates is better than Dominators there because you can't see the Space Pirates. <laughs> thought that's where you were going. I think Space Pirates works better with the visuals if you had them because so much of part two is just endless model shots and the doctor and Jamie and Zoe are barely in it. Yeah. At least in parts three, four and five, they have a key part in the narrative. So there are fewer model shots of boxes slowly flying through space and formation. Jumping ahead of you too, for you as well. The, the novelization is really good. Of space pirates. Yeah, it is. But I want to talk about how good the novelization of dominators is. But before that, let's give you your origin story. When would you have first seen Dominators? I know for me, it was early 1986 when we first got the Hartnell Troughton package on PBS in the States. There were 17 Hartnells and five Troughtons. Dominators would have been the first Troughton they showed. That's probably January 1986, and I fell asleep within about 30 minutes, and it was years before I ever made it to the end of the story. When would you have first seen Dominators, and did you fall asleep like young Jason on the very first try? Well, I can only assume that young Jason had to sleep off the anaesthetic for whatever procedure he was having. But the introduction for me would have been around sort of 1992 or 1993 um, when I started collecting VHS um, Doctor Who stories. Um, I think the first Troughton I saw properly was The Mind Robber, when that was repeated on the BBC in 1992. And not long after that, I think I went out and got the next Troughton that was available. And, you know, bearing in mind in 1992, we had a lot less stories available to us at the time. And the vast majority were from um, season six. So rather than going out and buying the one that I've already watched, I bought another one, which is coincidentally the one before it. So got the Dominators. And um, no, there was no... Um, feeling of boredom or anything um, with that with me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, um, you know, devoured it as much as I would devour any other, you know, Doctor Who I was being introduced to at that time and, you know, thoroughly enjoyed it for, for what it is, just a, a rip-roaring, you know, throwback to sort of 1930s style sci-fi of, um, you know, like Buck Rogers with flying saucers and cities of chrome with spires and um, and all that sort of stuff, and, and obviously the the, the robots and, and everything else. So, yeah, it was, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, came on to Twitter, as I'm still going to call it, no matter what Mr. Musk wants me to do. Um, 
you know, came onto Twitter in, in later years, you know, when, you know, you know, found out there was such a thing as Doctor Who fandom on Twitter, which I could easily, easily access and um, then found out for some reason, the story that I've, you know, loved and enjoyed from my childhood is, is thought of as being a bit of a duffer. Um, and we've kind of took it from there really and, you know, started a little crusade to try and make people understand why it's it's not nearly as bad as you think it is. When would you have first read the Ian Martyr novelization? I would have first gotten the novelization probably in 1986 or in 1987. I know it was not one of the first ones that I bought. Um, it's not the greatest novelization of all time, but for me, the novelization is one of the best at improving what happens on television because of Martyr's particular writing style and because he is able to up the budget and improve on some of the effects that Morris Barry would have struggled with on TV. When did you first get the novelization, and what does it do for you as opposed to what the TV story does for you? Um, well, I got it specifically for this this podcast um, when I knew that I was the, the one that was lucky enough to be picked for the apex of your Doctor Who theme pod, uh, Dominators-themed podcast, um, rushed out and bought the um, <laughs> the double the double bill, which is oh my um, goodness the dominators wow. and the crotons in a in a shiny silver cover because they both feature silver robots. Yeah, um, peas in a pod, quarks and crotons. Um, so yeah, it's it's a really relatively recent purchase, I think. What does it add? I think it's it's the sauce on your steak, basically. Um, you know, you get a good, fine bit of steak and you can enjoy that perfectly well by itself with just a little bit of seasoning, but, you know, you add a nice sauce on top of it, then it lifts it a little bit more, doesn't it? So I think that's that's what Ian Martyr does with this. Um, this book, like you say, he's got infinite budget, so there's a lot more quarks going on. Um, he's got... Um, a way of getting you into that world, doesn't he? He's, um, you know, an author like Terence Dix, for example, is very much, you know, this is what's happening. I'm going to show you, you know, tell you what's happening and this is what's happening in this character and, you know, so on and so forth. Ian Marta wants you to be in that moment. He wants you to be in that um, survey module, for example, when it is getting blasted by quarks and rolled down a hill and, and 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 Zoe and Collier are inside. He wants you to be there as well. Um, and that's what he really adds. He adds, you know, stuff that um, not just you know budget wouldn't allow, but the time wouldn't allow of you know when this is going out. So the um, the Dominators themselves are a lot more violent, especially Toba. You know that sadistic side. The Toba comes out a lot more in the book. He has you know. Um, there's one one scene where Teal, the the Dulcian, gets crushed by a quark, and you hear a dull snap, and you're wondering what's what's that quark broke? Has it snapped his spine? Or mm. it's really quite um, grim in that part. He's he, he kind of really puts poor Balin through the the mill, and he's a broken man at the end, even before he's vaporized by the quark so it's, it's a lot more adult themed in that respect than what you would actually be able to show a quarter past five on a Saturday afternoon just after the sports result on BBC so you know ultimately there's, it's not like he's 
you know, taking the novel and he is, you know, you know, polishing a turd for want of a, a better phrase. He is actually taking something decent. He's just, you know, rolling it in glitter and making it sparkle a little bit more. That's a good way of putting it. <clears throat> I'll be talking about this more in the audio essay that follows, but just to give you a sneak preview, Ian Martyr is given either the rehearsal scripts or the camera scripts or the transmission scripts, whatever he's given. He does not say, all right, I have to stick with what the stage directions tell me. Terrence Sticks will deviate from the stage directions in order to make things more cinematic, and Terrence will always interject with commentary either on how good the plot is or on how stupid the villain is. I think had this book come out in the late 70s and had it been assigned to Terrence Dix, Terrence probably would have assigned a lot of adjectives to Rago and Toba talking about how inept they are. Then you would never have doubted what Terrence really thinks of this story. It would have been about as acerbic as his trashings of Meglos or Ark of Infinity or Android Invasion. Three books where you read the book and you can tell, gee, Terrence hated this one and is not <laughs> being shy about his feelings at all. Ian Martyr does not editorialize. He never lets you know what he thinks. He just says, all right, I am going to tell this story as if you are there. This is what you see. This is what you hear. This is what you smell. This is how scary it is. Ian Martyr does not do lighthearted comedy of manners. So that's really uh, the most unique facet of Ian Martyr's writing. He will do it again in Reign of Terror. He will do it again in The Invasion. At this point in the life of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, he has already done it for Ark in Space and Sontaran Experiment and Earthshock. And most notably, he took the witty, civilized comedy of manners that is Rebo's operation <laughs> and made it really graphic and grim dark. Yeah. Dominators, I think, works better the way that Ian Martyr did it. I would read anything that Terrence Dix writes, but if Terrence Dix had written this, it would have been a lot like Megalos or Android Division. It's me being much more clever than the narrative. Ha ha ha. Martyr takes the story at face value, and he just makes it better by giving it a bigger budget and giving it a more visceral feel. So it's not exactly a fun book. It's not something that I read for laughs, but when I want to get in the mood, this book really, really, really fits it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think um, it's it interesting, you know, it's easy to forget that Terence Dix did have a hand in writing this story. Um, you know, as Terence Dix was coming up as assistant script editor, you know, this is one of the first stories that he actually worked on um, before going into season six properly. Um, how did he describe this story once? It was the, he described it as the story that was made at the end of season five, but broadcast at the start of season six, just so you could avoid saying the word the Dominators? That is correct. <laughs> season five, the production block, begins yeah. with Abominable Snowman, and they have a week off in Wales to go filming, and Patrick Troughton is in a great mood. And then the season ends with what was supposed to be a six-part story, Part six of The Dominators is torn up by Derek Sherwin. I believe Terrence had to rewrite part five to give it a new ending. And then there was literally nothing to air in between part five of this story and part one of the next. So Derek Sherwin writes part one of The Mind Robber on no budget using one standing set 
and a white backcloth, and part one of The Mind of Evil is transcendently good, even though it's literally a no-budget story written on the back of a cocktail napkin from the BBC pub in yep. about 35 minutes before they went into the studios, and that turned Mind Robber from a four-part story into a five-part story with two different authors. So yeah, Terrence would have done the adaptation. Terrence had also had to rewrite, I think, Seeds of Death. Yep. Then you can tell which parts he rewrote because the story picks up the pace noticeably in the back half once he takes over. And of course, Terrence also had to write uh, with Malcolm Hulk all of the war games in yep. about 48 hours. So <laughs> Terrence is doing a lot of heavy lifting. But yeah, the season ends with Dominators and Mind Robber. So the scripted rerun of Evil of the Daleks after Wheel in Space serves as a bridge between the seasons, but in reality, season five ends with the end of Mind Robber, and season six begins with The Invasion, which is a much shorter season than before, and again begins with a week of location filming, and put, puts Patrick Troughton in a good mood, but I think by the end of season five, he'd already decided to quit. And this story, if you read the Elizabeth Sandifer essay, this is the, this is the exact moment where Troughton's face <laughs> falls, and he says, I'm out of here. <laughs> this is this is this is the very story. <laughs> yes, I don't know which version um she's been watching, but you know, Troughton is, is superb in this story, um, as he always is, you know. Any any story with um these three in, you know you're gonna get you know, on screen you're gonna get something, you know, magical. So you get um you get that scene you've talked about with um the doctor and Jamie pretending having to feel the um mental test you get the do- the scene with the doctor and zoe in the the dominator craft where he's trying to figure out what the plan is of what's powering the ship and there's a beautiful back and forth between them there um you know you get jamie um between the doctor's legs trying to as he's trying to figure out how to crash the crash land the the capsule there's, there's so much of the physicality of, of patrick Troughton still going on um you know there is location footage shooting in this story and noticeably Patrick Troughton isn't in it. He has, um, like you say, he's, he's worn out. He's, he's kind of done for. He's pretty much like, actually, can I do this for another year? Well, go on, then I will, but that's it. Um, so he's, he's kind of, you know, already, you know, backing out, you know, even though it's, it's the production block of, of season five, he's, he's block he's backing out and saying, actually, I don't want to be on location. Basically just put someone in a Beatles wig and get them to run around juggling the egg and, <laughs> No one will notice. Um, <laughs> and by nobody, read everybody. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, but um, obviously, you know, you, you have that in, introduction from, from Terence Dix and he does what Terence Dix is particularly adept at, which is padding. He pads very well, Terence Dix. And, you know, the scenes with the, the Dominators arguing, bickering backwards and forwards um, is, a, is a very typical Terence Dix um thing to do and Ian Martin obviously you know captures that perfectly in the book as well um there's a lot more um arguing between the two um d- uh, dominators in fact if anything in the book it's it's where it be, starts to become a little bit more repetitive because you do get to the point in the book where you're thinking you know he said this is your last chance to about and then he goes off and does it another three times and you're thinking oh just just sack him already or just listen to him and um but yeah that's that's another element of, of this story that I really enjoyed just the the fact that we have aliens that don't get on with each other you know you don't get this with with Daleks or Cybermen or 
or, or ice warriors, they all just fall into line. But it's it's really refreshing to have, you know, depth of character of aliens that actually antagonize each other. I guess with the Daleks, the only exception to that is there's a terrific scene late in Planet of the Daleks when the Supreme Daleks shows up and destroys one of the underlings for having failed. Yeah. In in real life, I think probation or Toba would have been fired or executed by part two or three of the story under any other writer because how many times is he going to be allowed to fail? And by the end of the story, he literally causes the Dominator's ship to be blown up yep. out of his sheer incompetence. That doesn't make uh, Rego a very good navigator or mentor. Well, I think it's interesting that he's a navigator. He's not like a general or a you know leader or anything. It's a navigator, Rago. So I think there is probably he's he's probably on the lower rungs of the of the Dominator hierarchy, whatever that is. Do we ever see the Dominators again? Are they referenced in any other Big Finish or any of the books? Is there anyone else who said, "I want to play on the sandbox that is the universe of the planet Dulcus? Um, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I know Quarks have been have come back, but um, I think it's quite contentious. I don't know if. The estate of um, Henry Lincoln and Mervyn Hazeman, who created the Dominators, have allowed anything much to be done. Um, I know it was it was a real big bone of contention because obviously Norman Ashby's written this, um, you know, sitting there in the pub with his mate, you know, Robin Bland and David Agnew. He's and don't forget Stephen Harris. Yep. Um, and the reason being is obviously, as you've mentioned, um, this was a six-part story which got cut down to five parts, um, and they were that aghast at that that they asked the names to be taken off it. Um, the other fallen of the had with production team and the BBC was around the licensing of the Quarks. Um, you know, I think um, Lincoln and Hazeman had the same idea as the BBC, which was this could be something as good as the Daleks. You know, if you start merchandising, if you start making it all paul figures and you know start putting it into comics and everything this could be as you know this could be the next daleks basically but the bbc ran with that idea before they'd actually got permission from the writers and that caused a bit of a um you know argument between the two so that ended up as pretty much well we'll not use them then that's fine you know if we can't play with them you can't play with them either and it kind of, you know, died a death really after sort of the the pop up again in, in the war games. Interestingly, they obviously they created um, Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart as well, and they're quite happy to let him appear in both the invasion and and everything afterwards, which is should be really thankful for. They're quite happy just to take a check every time the Brigadier popped up. Um, but yeah, it was it was a real missed opportunity just through stubbornness, I think, on on the part of the BBC and them that. You know, we, we haven't done this properly, so we're not going to do it at all. Candy Jar Books has been given the license to write Brigadier Stories pre-unit. That is about to finally wrap up after about 10 years of continuous production. I've had three Doctor Who literature guests who have written for the Candy Jar Books Lethbridge Stewart series, and I believe that's going to be followed on by a unit series. So the estate of Hazeman and Lincoln is doing very well licensing out Lethbridge yeah, yeah. Stewart. Which begs the question, could there be a series of candy jar books novels featuring the quarks going throughout history, destroying various things, civilizations, 
quite possibly I'd think we'd all love to see that um, I think Big Finish have got a they did announce I don't know if it's out or still getting worked on but they did announce a, a story with the Quarks in so I don't know what's happened with that that's my real weakness in fandom other than talking too much on podcasts I don't know nearly as much Big Finish as I should I just don't have the ability to buy every single one of their stories so they will bring back some monster that I love, and I won't find out about it until years later. Like, I didn't find out about a sequel to Seeds of Doom. I didn't find out about a, a sequel called The Ozidon Adventure, backing up to Android Invasion for quite a long time. So they could have been doing dozens of stories about the Quarks, and I never would have known about it. Um, they announced a unit box set, which was due to be released in March 2022. Power of the Dominators. Huh. Did it ever come out? If you just bear with me while I check the fact machine. We'll go to the fact machine. All right, we are back from the fact machine, and Fraser has some shocking information for us. Yeah, so um, the, the, the Power of the Dominators was indeed released by Big Finish in, in March 2022, so it's out there. And it's got an all-star cast. It's got Gemma Redgrave, Ingrid Oliver, and Christopher Naylor, who is Big Finish's Harry Sullivan. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's one to go and look into. In the meantime, we have for you a product placement. We have a review of the new Quark machine. Over to you, Bill. A review of the new Quark by Bill Evenson. Welcome to Toba the Dominator's blog, posted by Toba, 12.39pm. Hello fellow Quark owners from across the ten galaxies. Sorry I haven't posted in a while. Things have been crazy around here. After my last entry, our ship had to swerve to avoid a collision with a drop-in ship, and since then Rago and I have been wearing these awful back braces. Actually, the back brace really isn't that bad. I can still stomp around and shout quite a bit, which I like. Rago seems really crabby about having to wear one, though, and now it seems like all we do is yell at each other. But honestly, I don't know if anything would make that guy happy anymore. People who know me know that I like to have a good time. I really like to destroy things, for instance. But all Rago wants to do is drill, drill, drill. What a bore. To all my friends on Epsilon 4, I can't even guess when we'll arrive. Rago broke away from the fleet yesterday and landed the ship on the dullest planet you've ever seen in your life. We're here on a mission to refuel the fleet. I'm not supposed to talk about it, but it involves drilling. And more drilling. Let's just say a lot of drilling. And, at least according to Rago, not much in the way of destroying. Anyway, without further ado... Here's my review of the new Quark, which has a lot of cool new apps. First of all, there's the Destroy app. You have a lot of cool options with Destroy. You can split your destruction into three phases by saying Target, and then Power, and then Destroy, which is an intimidating way to interrogate prisoners. I've also found that just saying Kill works equally well as Destroy, so play around with it, have fun. I did use the Total Destruction app once, but the building I ordered Totally Destroyed looked pretty much the same afterwards as it had before I ran the app. Still, the building's at least a good 
12 feet away from our drilling site, so who cares? Then there's the Molecular Force app, which seems a bit pointless to me. You basically use this for restraint, although supposedly some cork owners hack theirs to molecular force clothing off of a person. But if you need a cork for that, I feel sorry for you. Note, molecular force, at least at the low power setting I use, still allows people to talk, and it wears off after a few minutes. Again, I usually just destroy aliens, so I don't see the need for it. Rago loves it, though. The main problem with the Quark is battery life and running multiple apps simultaneously. For my personal tastes, I like to run Destroy at full power. Yes, I know. Imagine that. Toba gives full power to Destroy. Of course, with Destroy running at full power, other apps, like operating the drill, run more slowly, and power tends to drain faster. You may also notice that if you're running Destroy at full power, and if you're destroying lots of things, then the Quark voice comes out in this really high-pitched, broken speech that's incomprehensible. I have my quarks programmed to say, shall we destroy, whenever they see any aliens, but usually even I can't understand what they're saying. Recharge makes the quarks flap their arms around a bit, but if you ask me, it actually uses more power than if you just left them alone or had them destroy some aliens. The new equalize function works pretty well. If one quark starts to run out of power before another one, you can just tell them to equalize and then their power levels are the same. Of course, you'll need to buy at least two quarks to use it. If you're like me and you like to destroy a lot of things, you'll want to know how easily the quarks themselves are destroyed. Here, I'm afraid the quarks come up a bit short. It's actually quite easy to disable a quark by dropping a rock on it or throwing a bed sheet on it and pushing it over. This is why I like to use the quarks primarily to destroy everything I come into contact with. If your enemy's destroyed, they certainly can't destroy you or your quarks, can they? Yeah, just try telling that to Rago. You should have seen Rago just now. He came over and interrupted the drilling to ask how the drilling was going. Brilliant. Then some primitive blew up one of the quarks, and Rago announced that he's going to destroy the primitives personally. I swear he's just doing it to spite me. Oh, before I go, I should address the concern that some consumers have expressed that the quarks may become sentient and attempt to conquer the universe. All I can say is, quarks are robots, not Daleks. Sounds like someone's been reading too many comics. Toba. So we've talked about the Dominators on television. We've talked about uh, the Dominators, the book. We've talked about Dominators, the big finish. What else can we say about this story? Fraser? Um, it's just good, isn't it? It's great. It's a great story. It's um, it just doesn't deserve the reputation um that it has. I mean, you know, I can sit here for for hours and hours and talk about why I love the Dominators, um, but I always think now for me the the interesting question is why do you not? Well, I did answer that question a little bit earlier in the hour with my top ten list about things to quote-unquote enjoy about the Dominators. In all seriousness, I think my biggest problems with the Dominators are threefold. Number one, the pacing. I'm never the kind of guy who says a Doctor Who story is two episodes too long. I'm aware that these are serials and not individual movies. The way things were made in the 1960s, you didn't have previously on Doctor Who or the Dominators. So you had to apportion a little bit of each episode, restaging scenes from the week before, 
So in case you missed part one because you were out of the country, you have to have several scenes in part two that recap or duplicate things that were said in part one in order to bring the audience up to speed. So not only do you have the reprise of the previous week, but you also have dialogue that recaps the previous week. If you watch all that as a 100-minute movie, you're going to be seeing the same scene several times over as it's staged and then recapped. So this was never meant to be watched in a single sitting. That's not my problem. My problem is the 25-minute episodes themselves don't really move. I think part of that has to do with this is not Doctor Who's best cast. Ronald Allen is good, but I think he's much better than Ambassadors for reasons that I'll discuss when the Ambassadors episodes come up, and that's going to be a banger, by the way. Love, love Ambassadors of Death. Who doesn't? So the individual episodes, twenty-five, even at 25 minutes long, for me, they still overstay their welcome. Secondly, it's the script. I don't mind plot holes. I don't mind inept aliens. I happen to like Space Museum. I think it's a very clever script with some really laugh-out-loud funny moments. Yeah, and yeah. Space Museum should be much higher up than bottom five of all time. I would put it well above Dominators, for example. But it's just the idea that Rago and Toba are constantly fighting for all five weeks, and Rago never does anything about it. So when I watch the story, I'm like, guys, shut up. Stop punishing each other and just start conquering. And the biggest problem that I have is the point that Elizabeth Sandifer makes in the original Tardis Erudatorum essay. I have the second Doctor volume, so I'm going off of that. This story is so regressive and culturally right-wing, and <clears throat> to be anti-pacifist in 1968-1969 is to be establishment, pro-Vietnam War, anti-hippie. And Sandifer writes, this makes you reevaluate everything that you thought was good about the Abominable Snowmen. And fair enough, when I went back and I watched the Abominable Snowmen as part of my pilgrimage in 2021... That was the story that suffered the most in my estimation. I had always loved The Abominable Snowman, primarily because of the Terrence Sticks novelization. But when you watch, and I'm not talking about the animated version, which does some of the things to alleviate the uh, whitewashing cast. And when you watch the reconstruction of Abominable Snowman, it really is these two guys hating on Tibetan culture, and all of the monks are antagonists and heels. And you realize that Abominable Snowman is not nearly as enlightened as I thought it was when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I thought it was a sensitive exploration of Tibetan culture and Buddhism. It is not. It is a harsh, savage hack job. And that's basically what the Dominators is to hippie culture. Oh, all, pac all pacifists are stupid and deserve to die. So I think the story is not coming from a good place. That being said, Yes, you are right. The cast of Troughton and Wendy Padbury and Fraser Hines are gold together. And there are scenes with the Doctor and Jamie and scenes with the Doctor and Zoe that are just, again, in isolation, taking everything else out. These are laugh-out-loud scenes because the three of them improve anything that they are in because they knew how to act for television in the 1960s. They know how to capture the eye. They know how to do physical comedy. It's not just that they get witty dialogue, it's that they are a very good team together. And because the story survives as full video and not just audio, you get the benefit of all that physical comedy at which Patrick Crowden excelled. 
So if there are good things about the story, it's the fact that these three performers are in it, not so much the underlying story or script itself. So that's my big take on the Dominators. Yeah, um, I think in terms of the, the hatchet job on the hippie culture, I think that's potentially what Hazeman and Lincoln were aiming for, but I think Sherwin and Dick's kind of in the wash wash a lot of that out, to be honest. I don't think that comes across you know, particularly well. I think they, they aim a little bit better with the Dulcian Society and, and make it a bit more interesting and in-depth. Uh, in terms of the pacing, I think you're absolutely right on that. Um, you know, I think what shows in this is that this is a six-part story that cut, cut cut down to five parts at part four. You know, if, you know, Derek Sherwin had hot the full script and realised from day one this wasn't going to work and, you know, moved things around a little bit better, we wouldn't have everything happening in episode five. Literally everything happens in episode five, and I think that's where the pacing issues come in. Um, you know... For the rest of it, you know, what I'm going to say is you are 100% right when you say you don't like this. You're 100% right. Just as I am 100% right when I say I like this, I love this story, and it's excellent because it's opinions at the end of the day. And I think what we've shown this evening is, you know, we can come at the story with two completely different opinions and we can have um, a very good discussion about those opinions where we respect each other and come out if not in total agreement then at least understanding where the other person comes from and i think that's that's the most important thing we can do with this story is you know have have that hearty discussion about it and 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 get where the other person's coming from and that is one of the darker sides of fandom it's this notion of toxic positivity if i like it you are wrong for not liking it and i'm going to attack you for not liking what i like that can make Twitter an uncomfortable place at times. It's not quite as bad as the toxic negativity of the not my doctor yeah. crowd, but it is something to watch out for. It's an aspect, and I will 100% tore my hands up and say I've done that. You know, if you, you know, I, I, I make it a running joke that if you say something bad about the Dominators, I'll give you a week before I crawl out your television backwards and give you a five-hour TED talk on why it's fantastic. So I am, <laughs> I'm as guilty as anyone else of of saying, you know, if you say you don't like something, I will come for you, and I have to pull myself back at times and say, look, you know, you are you're within your right not to like this. You, you've got an opinion just as much as I have. And, you know, if you don't like it, awesome. Let's let's have a chat about it, but let's not, you know, go to the ends of the earth and the extremes of, of, of the way that some people do. And if you look at the DWM survey, there are probably more folks in my camp than in yours. But at the end of the day, you enjoy watching the story. You have limited free time. You have a career, you're married, you have children, you have several podcasts that you're on. You don't have 24 hours of leisure time in a day. If watching The Dominators is what gives you a pickup, that's a wonderful thing. And for me, I have done hate watches of The Dominators. It's not a story that I would voluntarily watch more than once every five years. But talking about it and reading the book and having this conversation is a great experience. And I'll say, if I were to play Would You Rather, I would rather talk about The Dominators with you than watch the episode. Fraser, where else can we find you in the world of Doctor Who podcasting these days? Um, The usual places. You'll find me on the Trap One podcast. Um, I'm part of the Once in Future 
team. So we've been working through Big Finish. Um, just like you, I'm not a big, big finish aficionado. So it's been really good to get into Big Finish through the 60th anniversary Once in Future set. So you'll find me every month popping up on that as well as the usual novel reviews and such like. You'll also find me lurking around in the dark corners of a hamster with a blunt penknife with my good friends Simon Hart and Joe Ford. Various other places um, I'll keep cropping up because basically I'll I'll go where anyone wants us to. You and I have, as of earlier today, recorded an upcoming episode of Trap One covering a Doctor Who novelization. That episode has already come out by the time this Doctor Who literature airs. That was the Trap One discussion panel on Doctor Who Kerblam by Pete McTighe. And I'm sure I will be seeing you on lots more Trap Ones in the future because Trap One has a very big year planned for us. I have you booked for two more upcoming Doctor Who literature episodes. The next year of this podcast is pretty much booked, and I am not taking any new bookings for the time being because I have very few open slots left, and I have to guard those carefully. But I can confirm that you are going to be on the show twice more in the coming months. Perhaps you'll be talking about Patrick Troughton again. Who's to say? Time will tell. It always does. (laughs) It certainly does. Uh, Once again, thank you very much for having us on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Command accepted. Doctor Who, The Dominators, by Ian Martyr, televised as The Dominators, teleplay by Mervyn Hazeman and Henry Lincoln, Screen credit to Norman Ashby, televised in August and September 1968, paperback release date July 19th, 1984, target book number 86, cover artist Andrew Skilleter. The Doctor remembers Dulcus from a previous visit as a civilized and peaceful place, but times have changed, and his second trip is not quite the holiday he was expecting. The Dulcians themselves are more reluctant than ever before to engage in acts of violence. The so-called Island of Death, once used as an atomic test site, has served as a dire warning to generations of Dulcians of the horrifying consequences of warfare. But an alien race prepares to take advantage of their pacifism. The whole planet and its passive inhabitants are threatened with complete annihilation, and no one, it seems, is going to lift a finger to stop the evil dominators and their unquestioning robot slaves. My audio essays on Doctor Who literature tend to fall into two camps. One, for books that I already reviewed for the ratings guide, I take my original review, clean it up, and add some detail or reflect any evolution in my opinion about a given TV serial or novelization over the years. You'll see that coming up in my eventual review of Frontios, where my original review of the TV serial was negative, but come to find out, I have not felt negative about Frontios on TV in years. Those kind of reviews tend to last for about 15 minutes or so. In the other camp, for books that I have not formally reviewed before, I'll read through the book right here in front of my computer, flipping back and forth to the online episode transcript so that I can track changes between TV and print, and write a full essay about the two. Those essays usually take about 
30 minutes to play. This essay will be of the former kind. I last read the Dominator's novelization about 10 years ago. At the time, I was still living in Brooklyn, as I am now, but was working in New Jersey. <laughs> that was a long commute. So the Target PDFs on my Kindle were my constant companion for that four train ride journey. At the time, I was selecting Target books to read in random order, going by random number generator. I do recall that Snake Dance and Time Lash were the first two books that I picked at the end of the year 2010. And then the random number generator gave me every season eight novelization at about a six week stretch, so so much for random. Separate accidents broke my original Kindle device in the middle of the demons, August or September 2011. And then I broke my replacement Kindle device in the middle of the arc in space. That accident involved a collision between me and a train, with my left elbow breaking a few milliseconds before the arc in space broke my Kindle. That was May 2013, and I stopped my target reread on Kindle after that. I figured that to break two Kindles while reading is misfortune, but to break a third would be carelessness. Now, I had finished the Dominators on my Kindle a few weeks before that train accident, and I submitted my review to the ratings guide, which was posted in April 2013. At the time of posting, there was only one other review of the Dominators novelization, and that had gone up in 2007, a review titled, quote, Good Book, Bad Story. Much of the original version of this review was a line-by-line -line refutation of that earlier ratings guide review, and I titled my review, quote, Great Book, Bad Story, emphasis in original. I have no real wish to name and shame the author of that earlier review. 2007 feels prehistoric now. I was still living in Los Angeles at the time. Well, Diamond Bar, not downtown Los Angeles. Then I was working in San Bernardino. Now that was a good job. I had my own parking spot at the San Bernardino job. Except for the one day that I got to work and there was a literal deflated tumbleweed parked in my spot, which to this day I am convinced was a practical joke pulled by one of my then employees. My kid wasn't even born in 2007. Russell T. Davies was Doctor Who's showrunner back then in that prehistoric age, and the Doctor was David Tennant. Oh. Wait, okay, I guess 2007 wasn't that long ago. But the point is, I am no longer interested in a line-by-line -line refutation of a 16-year-old review. It is most likely the original author of that other review barely even remembers writing it or that if they were to pick up the novelization and reread it today, they would most likely have a different opinion. So I edited my 2013 ratings guide review, mostly to point out what I really like about Ian Martyr's novelization of The Dominators. I do still refute the point that the other reviewer made about the book being indistinguishable from the prose of Terence Dix. Well, because this is a literature podcast, and I did practice law for the better part of a lifetime, so distinguishing is what I do. So, I don't need to tell you that The Dominators on TV is god-awful. Now, Fraser, of course, disagrees, but right now, I'm on the mic. Mervyn Hazeman and Henry Lincoln submitted a six-part script so reactionary that, as Elizabeth Santifer had said on TARDIS Erudatorum, it makes you question everything you thought was good and progressive about the abominable snowmen. 
the production team famously cut out the final episode of The Dominators, and nobody ever noticed that 17% of the story got jettisoned in the process. Hazeman and Lincoln were so enraged by this that they insisted their names be removed and replaced by the bland pseudonym Norman Ashby. Yes, that's why they wanted their names off the story. Not because it was terrible, horrible, no good, but because the production team couldn't appreciate its nuances and length. Seriously. Maybe we are lucky that they never wrote for the series again after this. The best thing about the Dominators is that the three disposable characters in Episode 1 are named after the Arabic words for 1, 2, and 3. That's it. And those characters die in the first five minutes. The rest of it is darn near unwatchable. What Martyr gives us in Doctor Who and the Dominators instead is what the story would have looked like if it was directed by Douglas Camfield or David Maloney or Derek Martinez, and if it was shot in color and not an end-of-production-season-five budget, as was The Dominators. Martyr writes this thing as if he had Disney money to spend. He uses the basic literary devices of the five senses to engage us in the planet Dulcus, which, trust me, if you've watched The Dominators on TV, you really wouldn't think was worth doing. As Martyr writes it, and this is very distinguishable from the prose of Terence Dix, the Dominators have flinty emerald eyes. The Quark's probes glow crimson, blood-red, incandescent. The atmosphere inside the one fallout shelter on Dulcus is fetid. Ronald Allen's, quote, red-rimmed eyes lit up with a hypnotic gleam which seemed to be fired by hate and greed and lust and madness altogether. Now that is almost certainly not how director Morris Barry asked him to play it. And then there's the violence. This is not what Terence Dix's prose looks like. Terence's hallmark is irony, sardonic tone. He comments on the story as he goes, mocking the villain's thought processes if the story's a good one, or mocking the story's internal logic if it's a bad one. Terence makes things look a little more scenic, and he relies heavily on the original scripts rather than the slash-for-budget final versions, but he doesn't relay the world through the five senses, and he certainly doesn't do violence like Martyr does. Wahid, Etnan, and Tolada, or if you will, one, two, and three, were flung into the air like helpless puppets before collapsing in shapeless broken bundles in the sand. When Zoe is afraid of being shot, she, quote, expected the quark's glowing probes to discharge their murderous ultrasonic quanta and to smash her body to fragments. When on TV, the doctor is comically zapped by the dominators during an intelligence test, which he fails, Martyr decides to tell us what would have really happened. Quote, his swollen tongue trapped between gnashing teeth and his eyes crossing and bulging horribly in his lolling head. That, folks, is what Ian Martyr does to comedy. Lastly, Martyr certainly does deviate from the TV script, and in ways that make the story a tiny bit more gripping and atmospheric. He extends scenes to add tension and drama that certainly Hazeman and Lincoln wouldn't have known how to give us. The comic bit of business in episode 2 about Cully and Zoe taking a travel capsule across Dulcus becomes a stomach-churning, high-impact thrill ride in the book. In episode 5 on TV, it takes Cully and Jamie about six seconds to outrun a single quark, but in the book, they have to escape several phalanxes of quarks. Phalanxes! On TV, in that same episode, it's implied the characters dig a tunnel to steal the Dominator's radioactive seed capsule. But in the book, 
Martyr takes us inside that cramped tunnel to dig out every particle of Earth. If you thought Charles Bronson's Danny had it bad on The Great Escape, Martyr thinks he had it too easy and makes the digging even more claustrophobic. Best of all, Martyr has restaged the controversial Episode 1 cliffhanger, so we get the quarks described very early on in the book, and they never ask, Shall we destroy? In fact, Martyr even comments on the quark voices by describing them as, quote, demented giggling. So the Dominators will never be a good story, and you will note that I have not added an audio clip from the episode for this essay. The book can at times be a chore to read because the source material is piggish, regressive, and repetitive, but Martyr works just about as hard as a writer can possibly work to make the Dominator something else, visceral and terrifying. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, if you thought the Dominators had a bad reputation, well, to quote Al Jolson and the Jazz Singer, or to quote Sylvester McCoy and the Greatest Show in the Galaxy, quoting Al Jolson and the Jazz Singer, you ain't seen nothing yet. Next week, we are discussing possibly the most 1980s-looking Doctor Who story of all time. It has everything. It has Cold War drama. It has a range of accents. It has the most famous roundhouse kick in the history of the BBC. It has a pantomime horse masquerading as a dinosaur. It has another actor from The Great Escape. It is, of course, Doctor Who, Warriors of the Deep. Next time on Doctor Who Literature. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Barsky, Jim Sangster, and yours truly. This week's episode was written and edited by me. Our logo was designed by Jim Sangster. Special thanks to my special guest, Fraser Gregory. Fraser did a great job going 15 rounds with me on the story. Special thanks as well to Stacy Smith, Bill Evenson, and Arnold from ATB Publishing for kind permission to feature an audio adaptation of Bill's essay from the original 2012 Outside in Volume. And thanks to Stacy and Bill and Pencil Tip Publishing for the excerpt of Stacy Smith reading from Look at the Size of That Thing. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Doctor Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, on Mastodon at DR Who Novels at Mastodon.social, and on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments questions and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages.
Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.